Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for this episode of Autism Goes to College, the podcast for students on the spectrum and everyone who supports us. Navigating college is always a challenge, so here are the hacks, insights, and great ideas you've been looking for to make college work for you. We're a group of self-advocates, we all graduated, or we're almost there, and you can do this too. Hello, thanks for listening to our podcast, Autism Goes to College. I'm Catherine O'Brien, and I have just started working on my PhD in special education at University of California, Riverside. I started my college career at Bowdoin in Maine, which was a wonderful experience for me. After working for a few years, I went back for a master's degree at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. There, I focused on science teaching with an equity focus in urban schools. Most recently, I spent five years teaching at Milestones Day School, where I also led the technology committee and coordinated LGBTQ inclusion. Then, last fall, my own life experiences as a student on the spectrum and my teaching experiences led me to apply for the program I am in now, which will focus on autistic adolescents with a goal of improving outcomes in our transitions to adulthood, including both to college and to the many other paths we take in life. So I'm here to talk about my experiences navigating college and to graduate schools as a student on the spectrum and the work I'm doing to help others. The podcast is here for us to share and open up the conversation and include more insights from self-advocates on the spectrum. So thanks for listening, and we hope to hear from you. I'm here with Eric Lindhorst, the director of the film Autism Goes to College. Thanks, Catherine. Before we jump into the conversation, a little about this podcast and our project. Autism Goes to College began as a documentary film following five college students on the spectrum as they navigate college life. I directed the film and the film premiered at the Newport Beach Film Festival in 2019. We were also selected to screen at South by Southwest EDU, which of course happened online. At the end of this episode, I'll give some details about where you can see the film today. And it's all at our website, autismgoestocollege.org. So with screenings limited since the pandemic began, we wanted to open up the conversation and we created this podcast, which launched during Autism Awareness Month in April last year. The first five episodes featured the stars of the film talking more in depth about their college experiences and talking about what they're up to. And since then, we've talked to someone who transferred after starting his freshman year at the University of Oregon last fall and a senior who graduated from the University of Missouri-St. Louis this spring, plus a college counselor, a parent perspective, and insights from a certificate student at the University of Nevada at Reno. All college students on the spectrum, all over the map, sharing all kinds of experiences. Every month, we drop a new episode. What's also new is a resource center on our website with dozens of outtakes of important stuff from the film and stuff that didn't make it into the film, all the podcast episodes and blogs from experts and our student advisors from the film. Fun fact, this project was recognized as the best of the internet in 2022 by the Webby Awards Anthem Awards, winning gold for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we keep making it better, so reach out if you'd like to get involved. And be sure to listen to the end of this episode. We have kind of a big announcement. Okay, Catherine, as you mentioned in the show open, you are now in a PhD program at UC Riverside. 
You've navigated a lot of college already to get here, so let's let's start by hearing your launch from high school to college. What were you looking for, and and was it a good match? Thanks, Eric. Yeah, I felt very happy with the fit of my undergraduate institution. I had really wonderful college counselor at my high school who kind of got me. Actually, he helped me with college interviewing, which was a huge stumbling block for me as an autistic student during the admissions process. I just didn't know how to talk about myself in a positive way. Um, It felt very embarrassing. And so having somebody who kind of saw me and supported me and met me where I'm at and then guided me to say, hey, you know, I think you'll blossom at a smaller school, a liberal arts school, a school close to home, helped me end up at Bowdoin, where I was very comfortable and where I felt pretty well prepared. Luckily, my mom and dad were happy to take me to campuses. And my mom in particular was supportive of the idea that you'll feel it when you're at the right school. So although she was a little annoyed when we walked onto the campus of a college and I said after 15 minutes, like, I'm not really sure we need to finish the tour. I don't feel it. We finished the tour because we had driven three hours, by the way, in that case. But they were open to my intuitively either feeling comfortable on campus or not feeling comfortable and feeling overwhelmed at certain schools for reasons that I may not even be able to name. And so it sounds like they were somewhat involved in in helping you research. How involved were they in the application process and in terms of figuring out if you needed support services? They weren't. Uh, I was pretty self-directed with the application process. Once I had selected schools, I needed transport to visit colleges in my junior year. But after that, I was very self-directed and the supports that I recruited For me as an undergraduate, I did on my own. Uh, I worked with my dean's office, my hall leader, and the college counseling office, and all of those services were instrumental for me. But my parents did not take an active hand in my transition to college for the most part. And I think in retrospect, that served me well because having applied on my own, once I got there on my own, I also stood on my own two feet. And what were what would you say were your main challenges at college? Was it academic? Was it social? It it was more social. I had difficulties in relationships, difficulties discerning others' motivations in relationships, unfortunately. I, I had a couple of times where I misread folks' intentions as friends and they wanted more and then things got ugly, including one case where a a gentleman got kind of abusive and we had to engage the school discipline process. So those were difficult experiences. But I've always been academically driven. Um, I'm an autistic who's hyperlexic, so I've always really loved reading and books. And so those aspects of college came more naturally. But socially, I was pretty naive. And emotionally, I had a lot of growing up to do. And so the fact that I was at a college that provided counseling to anybody who needed it and had people that cared about me, uh, knew who I was as an individual student on a campus of less than 2,000 and were looking out for me really helped to make it through safely. People had my back even when I had those social difficulties that I alluded to. Mm Mm-hmm. 
after college you were teaching. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that? It was for a couple of years. You were teaching in public schools. Yeah, actually, right after undergrad, I was in the process of applying to medical schools. So I got a job at the UMass Medical School and I was working in a lab. And I pivoted because I was pretty miserable. And I couldn't answer the question, why do you want to go to medical school on my essays? And I was just totally stuck in a way that I've never been stuck in my life. And I was working on the side as a tutor and I applied to teaching school instead. And then I became a teacher. So there's like a little sideline in the story of trying something that I thought was going to be for me that totally was not. But then I became a teacher after getting my master's in education. So I, I student taught as a graduate student. Uh, and immediately started working in public and charter schools in Boston. And from there, I really gravitated to special ed students, which is how I ended up uh, teaching special ed for five years at my most recent school and then in a special ed doctoral program. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big pivot. What was a good fit about ed school? I mean, I guess it was an imperfect fit, but I could see myself helping people in a meaningful way that actually suited who I was as a person in a way that I didn't see myself doing in that hospital. For a lot of reasons that are kind of systemic, doctors don't spend a lot of time actually helping patients these days. And being able to audit medical school classes and working in a lab that was embedded in a hospital helped me see that what I wanted, which was to help people and to connect with them and to try to use evidence to improve their lives was something that a lot of people did and that maybe being a doctor wasn't my way to do it. So I think I encourage everybody to get out there and experience the fields you think you might enjoy before you actually commit to them because that was instrumental for me, both tutoring leading me to see that I enjoyed teaching because I had tutored for uh, spare change for a long time before I applied to ed school and being in a medical context if you think you might want to work in healthcare. It's very clarifying. It's really interesting that you talk about the fit of ed school being imperfect. Would you say that that word applies to all of your college experiences and like it's, you know, it's imperfect, but it's okay Uh, Or was there a point at which you really felt like, okay, this is perfect for me? I think that as I have matured and specifically as I have gotten my diagnosis correct and confirmed to me, my student experiences have improved. An important thing that we haven't talked about yet is that when I was young, I was identified as sensory processing disorder and that information was not shared with me. My family made the decision to help me through therapies, but not to give me a label. They feared that that might feel limiting in some way. However, not giving somebody a label doesn't mean that they don't understand that something is different about their life experience. When I was contacted for follow-up for a, a study with adults with sensory processing disorders as young people, I was already working as a special educator and I thought, oh my gosh, I need to know what is going on in my own brain because I empathize on a deep level with my neurodivergent students who have sensory processing difficulties like me. And when I received my autism diagnosis as an adult, 
I had been teaching for about three years uh, and I went on to teach for four or five more with that knowledge, but it was so empowering and it has made my third college experience feel a lot more seamless because so many of the recurring problems the first two times were due to social miscommunications and dysregulation that came from being misunderstood and myself not having the tools to report why I was being misunderstood. It's confusing and it can be very, very easy to blame yourself if that is your experience and nobody is guiding or supporting you to understand it. That's really interesting. So you're out teaching uh, for several years. What made you decide to go back to school after being out in the working world? Well, few things happened in the working world in 2020, uh, specifically for teachers that kind of disrupted things, you know, gave us all time to reflect. I was sitting at home remote teaching during the pandemic and thinking about how to grow and how to support my students who I felt were uniquely vulnerable, frankly. We know that all students were affected by the pandemic, but there was a lot of concern about learning loss and and closing of developmental windows for students with disabilities. My main concern was that they would become very sad and isolated because we know those kids have less community. Regardless of what the impact was, the pandemic cued me to think about having a bigger impact because things really slowed down and I had time to read and write and think and process. And I realized that Although there is so much more awareness of autism and a lot more acceptance as well, there are also a lot of unanswered questions, particularly when we think about people with autism who aren't children anymore. And I feel very strongly that folks who have a heart for neurodiversity, who have lived experience with neurodiversity, need to contribute to research. And I also knew that there were some pretty important research questions around uh, LGBTQ identity, the experiences of women on the spectrum, and uh, what makes for a good transition to college or career versus a poor transition that I wanted to get out there and answer and that aren't really adequately covered yet by research. So that's how I ended up in grad school. I just the world slowed down and my curiosity sped up. And so so you're now focused on research on special education. What do you think the big questions are? Like, where do you see the gaps in services and the gaps in, in autism support programs? I mean, I think that there is a general trend of needing to hear from autistic people and their families about what their major challenges are. Because a lot of special ed so far has been driven by professional observations of what's lacking compared to a typically developing child. But the reality is the neuroscientific evidence shows that brain development across the lifespan is different in these different neurodevelopmental conditions like autism. And so comparing a child to a person with a typically developing brain isn't fair or productive in terms of thinking about how to help that person live their best life as their most authentic self. So I'm hopeful uh, that the neuroscience evidence and the voices of self-advocates will 
bring about that positive change and positive identity within the research community. That's what I'm looking for because I honestly think we know so much more than we used to and there is a lot of interest and those are both positives that we can build from. One of our most recent guests talked about the increasing numbers of identity groups on campus. Do you see that? And if so, is that significantly improving student life for students on the spectrum? Yeah, actually I am. I don't know that there is a specific one at UC Riverside, but there are neurodivergent student mixers through our disability services, which are nice. And I'm also actually mentoring a group of high school students that are creating that type of support system in their own high schools. And they have the aim of going to college uh, within the next two years. So I think that that is a grassroots movement that I see growing and growing. And I think it's incredibly positive because within the last five years or so, there's this research on dual empathy and how it's not necessarily a broken social skill set, but just a different social skill set that may come out at its best light with other autistic folks. And so having those affinity spaces where communication can feel a little more seamless and some of those experiences can be best understood is wonderful to me. We've had to create them ad hoc for so very long. So you mentioned that one of your interests is creating this kind of framework that can capture, I guess, quote, normative neurodiverse development. But sort of can you unpack that for people a little bit? What is that? And and do you think that's possible? Well, I don't necessarily believe that it's possible for me to do alone. However, I do think that it is worth going for as allied professionals and as autistic folks. I have to say I'm not the first person to talk about wanting this. Um, I have heard about this from folks who are working in occupational therapy and speech language pathology because when they treat clients who might have autism or any other neurodevelopmental condition, they're treating them based on normative benchmarks that don't really feel fair or organic to what the young person is is necessarily working on. A lot of autistic people first develop language through scripts. And so although we understand now that uh, gestalt language development proceeds in stages, that work is in its infancy and it's uh, not necessarily well connected to anything that's going on in the broader field. So I see these... um, small efforts that are focused on small skill sets right now. And I think there is an opportunity to unify them and to say like, these are pretty normal things that are good, that are things your child or you will go through as your brain matures. And just because they look a little bit different from your neighbor's child or your classmate, that doesn't mean they're wrong. And so so just to explain for folks that may have never heard this phrase before, normative neurodiverse developments means that maybe there should be some benchmarks for what normal looks like for neurodiverse kids. Is that it? Yes. Let me backtrack. We know what benchmarks look like for a, a baby to a toddler to a young adult. We expect them to, you know, begin rolling over and then crawling and, and walking and They babble, and then they go through puberty at a certain point and become adults. That's a very rapid overview of of child development. When we compare any child to that, we erase the idea that we know that on a genetic level, on a physiological level, bodies are different and the end outcome is different. And so 
one of the things that self-advocates report is very painful for them is having well-intentioned, loving, kind family members and therapists who just really tried to get them to be somebody that they were not and could not be. And so having a scale of what it is going to look like when somebody is growing up who isn't typically developing, but is okay and just needs to be nurtured and loved for who they are, I think would be perhaps a necessary corrective. And so we talked about challenges that individuals face and how to navigate those, but what do you think um, the biggest challenges are for institutions, universities, colleges, to anticipate and even eliminate some of the challenges that students on the spectrum tend to face? One of the things that strikes me a lot is the structural change in how accommodations are pursued from high school to college. I know that because FERPA governs communication to people who are over 18, the parents are essentially closed out of the process for a lot of undergraduates unless they have guardianship or something else in place. And a lot of freshmen, myself included, are not particularly savvy about self-representing. Now, there are some states, uh, my home state of Massachusetts is one, where uh, students are required to attend their high school IEP meetings, but that's not actually the norm throughout our country even. And so students who may have had a team making decisions about their goals for them via their IEP right up until their senior year of high school, then go to college where that team is, through confidentiality, actually left out of the loop. And oftentimes it's very difficult for us to know how to make that switch or to know how to prepare a young person for that switch. So that's something that I worry a lot about. And in terms of professor training uh, or sort of helping make life easier for faculty and equip them with more tools, what, do you, what, what would you like to see? Honestly, it, it's very variable right now. And I think that for some professors, it is still on the level of basic awareness of how neurodiversity can show up in their classroom, that individuals with autism, folks on the spectrum can go to college and that this isn't something that doesn't concern them. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of college professors have never had to think about disability in their institution. And so there is a need still to grow that awareness and also to help students self-advocate so that when the student steps up and self-advocates, the the professor has a knowledge base to understand what the student is saying about their experience. If a professor has never interacted with a person with autism before or doesn't have a family member or a loved one that has walked this path and a student discloses to them uh, in the process of accessing accommodations, that professor can have some pretty unproductive, unhelpful responses if they're grounded in stereotypes. So I think in general, awareness does need to improve for professors. Great answer. So uh, before we wrap up the conversation, do you have any advice to pass along? Maybe something you would have benefited from hearing as you were looking ahead at college from high school? I think that what I would have benefited from hearing is it's a long journey to find knowledge 
But if you are curious and you want to keep learning, school is absolutely the place for you. And the right school for you to keep learning whatever it is you want to know is out there. And having that knowledge will empower you. So if you know you want it, do not give up. If the first time you try, the outcome that you envision for yourself doesn't doesn't occur. Because when I applied to undergraduate institutions, I thought I was going to be an MD-PhD and focus on cancer research. And that's absolutely not what's happening right now. But I'm confident that where I am right now is the right thing. So at this point in the show, I usually just say thanks for listening and let you know all the ways to see the film. This time, I am happy to say that in January, my guest, Catherine O'Brien, will become the new host of Autism Goes to College. Catherine is the perfect fit for this, for many of the reasons you've just heard her talk about in the episode, and I will let her tell you why she's coming on board. Thanks, Eric. My professional and lived experiences both support the mission of Autism Goes to College. As a doctoral student, I hope to be a role model for others and continue what I began as a high school teacher of autistic youth. I'd like to be the voice that I needed to hear when I was younger. And our audience will be lucky to have you. And I want to say to all of you, thank you for having me. We started this podcast in the pandemic, and our intention has always been to center voices of students with autism. I was sort of filling in as the original host just to get the show off the ground. And now the podcast will be closer to its mission with Catherine at the host mic. And now, as promised, here are the ways to see the film. Catherine, you want to take it away? The documentary film Autism Goes to College is currently available through many channels, but the easiest way to see it today is to rent it on Vimeo On Demand, which you can access from your Apple TV or most smart TVs by going to the Vimeo On Demand app. You can find a link on our website at www.autismgoestocollege.org. The film is also available for educational use and for live and hybrid screening events. All the relevant info and links can be found on our website. Thanks so much for listening, following us on Instagram and Facebook. And thank you especially for adding your reviews on Apple Podcasts. Our show is very specifically for students on the spectrum navigating college. And we really appreciate the appreciation for Autism Goes to College. Thanks for listening. Hey. Thanks for listening to Autism Goes to College. We'd love to hear from you about what you'd like to hear more about. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Autism Goes to College. Hit us up with your thoughts, tell us what's going on on your campus and in your college life. To see the documentary film or set up a screening, check out our website at autismgoestocollege.org. <laughs>